Father, we just thank you so much for your manifest presence in this place. Lord, we just ask that you reign in this place, Lord, that you have your way completely, that your river would just flow unhindered in this place. Lord, we thank you so much that your joy and your peace that surpasses understandings manifests. And we just ask that your presence continue to come even now, Holy Spirit. We thank you so much that you are here and that you are so present in our lives. In Jesus' name. Oh, amen. All right, we're excited. I'm excited. I tried to change it, but it didn't work. I'm excited. We are in the middle of a series called the Spirit Series, and I just, this is one of the passions of my life. Intimacy with God, Holy Spirit, and uh, so it's fun for me to be able to preach this uh, message. And today's message, I'm talking about the presence of God in person and in power, Okay, and that's, that's essentially, you'll see what I mean. We're going to be talking about both facets of the Holy Spirit in person and in power. Before I get into that, I want to just say a couple of things because um, in the, the, when it's all said and done, we live out what we most truly believe. How many of you know that's true, right? So it's important to have right beliefs. If you ever heard of, how many of you here when Steve Backlin came here? Well, even just a couple weeks ago when we had Ron and Jill here talking about RTF, and they have a whole session on dealing with ungodly beliefs, because if you believe something erroneous, how many of you know that's problematic because you're going to get off track? And so how important is it to have right beliefs in terms of our second if we're uh, going to do something wrong, then we're going to be fearful, aren't we? We're not going to approach God in, as children. We're going to approach him with fear and trembling in a negative way and be scared of him. And so this goes, uh, the, that, this is where theology becomes important, okay? There needs to be a really a more thoughtful reflection on theology all the time. We should be, because all theology is really is our understanding of God, right? And so it's important for us to have our right beliefs about God in order that we live out properly in relationship to him and to others and in our own lives, now, this, to be sure, this isn't theology for its own sake. We don't want to get trapped into like just knowledge for knowledge's sake. No, it's about seeking God and understanding God properly. Um, so theology is a proper basis for all of Christian life and behavior. That's our aim. Okay, our aim isn't just to read a bunch of books and know about God. It's to, it's to know God more. Um, so because we're talking about the Holy Spirit, what I wanted to say is... A general statement, which isn't completely 100% true, but just generally speaking, in Christian theology, the role of the Spirit has often been given short shrift and has been left to the periphery. We've talked about this before, how the Holy Spirit's often been marginalized uh, in the church. I'm talking for centuries now. This isn't just a recent thing. Um, now, fortunately, every once in a while, the Holy Spirit pops his head up in a major way, and that makes us realize, oh my goodness, the Holy Spirit... Uh, is real and he's here and he's present. So you get revivals and spirit movements. But even so, even so, a lot of quote-unquote revivals or spirit movements um, get into erroneous theology about the Holy Spirit. And so it's important for us to, to have a biblical understanding about the Holy Spirit um, so that we know him properly and we know what he does and who he is as a person. So the Spirit is, we all know, we all believe in the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian, technically, because he's in our creeds and our theology, right? Like we, we confess, we believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe in Jesus the Son. We believe in God the Father. But theological confession is one thing. A practical realization of the truth we confess is quite another, Right? So it's one thing to say, this I believe, but to actually walk it out is a totally different thing altogether, okay? And true biblical faith is not only believing what's in the Bible, but actually living what's in the Bible. And that's sort of what I'm getting at, that the actual experienced life of the Spirit, the experiential dimension of life in the Spirit is something that people seem to be kind of nervous about. And part of this is because of misunderstandings due to wrong theology or erroneous theology or ideas that come that aren't biblical. To give you an example, he is not an it. 
You guys know what I'm talking about? And that is so common. Part of the issues in the King James Version of the Bible, they referred to him as it. And so the difference is personal versus an impersonal force. And this trips a lot of people up. You know, I've, <laughs> like some people uh, might say, I didn't know it was a person or whatever. But it's, that is such a crucial distinction, it's not even funny. How many of you ever heard of Benny Hinn? I highly recommend his book, Good Morning, Holy Spirit. How many of you have read that book? Oh, okay, a few of us. Highly recommend it because he essentially tells his testimony about how he um, got introduced to the Holy Spirit as a person. And it's been quite a few years since I read it, but um, what happened is in the 70s, he went to a Catherine Kuhlman meeting. If I remember right, in the middle of the meeting, she stops preaching and starts weeping and says, do not, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Stop grieving the Holy Spirit. He's all I have. And she's weeping for like three minutes. Stop grieving the Holy Spirit. Like he was a person that she was intimately acquainted with. And that really struck Benny Hinn. He was a young man, just got saved. And he, to be sure, he was already, uh, he was saved in sort of the Pentecostal movement, so he knew about the gifts of the spirits, but he never thought of the Holy Spirit as a person. And that night was a dramatic night for him. He encountered the Holy Spirit, and that changed everything. The next morning, he wakes up, says, good morning, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit falls, and that begins his life in the Spirit, relating to the Holy Spirit as a person. That was the novel thought, because a lot of us, even if we come from Pentecostal movements, might not realize that he's a person, Right? We think he's some kind of force or it, but in terms of being a person, like I remember hearing the story of this, this was a Pentecostal student at a Pentecostal college being honest with the professor and saying, God the Father I understand, God the Son I know and I get, but the Holy Spirit is just a gray oblong blur to me. A gray oblong bird. And think about, because it just, just even in terms of imagery, father we get, son we get, but Holy Spirit. And I think that's something a lot of people can relate to. Like, what is the Holy Spirit? And today I want to address that. Holy Spirit is a person. Because I don't want to take for granted that everybody here um, realizes that. Um, even just last year, I remember I uh, got Trisha a bike for her birthday, uh, a new used bike. Trisha found it a good deal on Kijiji. So we met this woman, and just the night before, I happened to be at a Chris Tomlin concert, and I had a stamp on my hand, and I noticed this woman had a stamp on her hand. I was like, were you at Chris Tomlin? And she's like, yeah, this woman who's selling Trisha the bike. So we started talking, and it turns out she grew up in a Pentecostal church. She grew up in it. I can't, I can't remember if her dad was a pastor. It doesn't really matter. Other than to say, we were having a pretty good conversation. Unfortunately, she was hurt by the church. But the point is, she was so excited. She's probably in her 40s. So excited because she's reading this book, I think, by Joyce Myers about how the Holy Spirit's a person. And this was a revelation. You know, she was like, wow, yeah, the Holy Spirit is a person. And that struck me only because she grew up Pentecostal. And if you think about it, the Pentecostal, the name of the denomination is about Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit fell. But unfortunately, what happens, even when your emphasis is so much on the Holy Spirit's works, like gifts of the Spirit, often life in the Spirit gets relegated to those works. Like often people just relegate all of the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the gifts of the Spirit. When that's a fraction of a percentage of what life in the Spirit's all about. So even if we're, you know, quote-unquote, a part of a movement that embraces the Holy Spirit, it's important for us to consider the Holy Spirit theologically to make sure that we understand him as a person. And so today's message was going to be kind of basic, I think, for a lot of us, but a good reminder, okay? So I want to kind of go over biblically Holy Spirit as a person. These are the three things I want to talk about. The personal implication is the Spirit as a person, and then I want to talk about the Holy Spirit as God's power. And then I want to end by talking about a key to experiencing a Spirit-empowered life. So first I want to talk about this, the Holy Spirit as a person. Now, like I already said, many people have this difficulty in seeing or relating to the Holy Spirit as a person. And there's probably a lot uh, that contributes to this, but two things I want to address 
that I think are sources of this difficulty is, first of all, our language, okay? Our use of language, and secondly, our use of imagery. Now, if you were here last week, I actually spent the whole message talking about our language. But for those of you who weren't here, I'm just going to give a couple of minute refresher, because this is important. So the word spirit in the Bible is primarily referring to God's spirit. Even sometimes when it's translated small s, more often than not, it's actually referring to God's spirit. Now, when you examine Paul's original usage and intent of the word spiritual, this occurs 26 times in the New Testament, 24 times in Paul, he invented the word in the Bible. It's always, 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 always referring to the Holy Spirit. Okay, and that is so important for us to understand because when you see the word spiritual, small s, we often think of it in terms of us. We're spiritual, like something, some kind of condition we have, but it's always about God's spirit. And that's just as a function of how we use that word in our common speech. Spiritual and spirituality is mostly about us, right? So you can't blame people if a translator puts that word to describe the adjective of the Holy Spirit that we would automatically think of us, oh, I'm spiritual, so this is some of the quality I have when it's always about God's Spirit. Now, this use of language leads people astray from the true biblical meaning of spirit and spirituality. Because if you think about it, almost every time this adjective pneumatikos occurs in the Bible, many translations translate it small as spiritual, and every time, think about this, 26 times it's about the Holy Spirit. So if you're reading it spiritual and your mind, because of the way we define it in our culture, goes to some quality we have and don't even think about the Holy Spirit, how many of you can see that's problematic? That's 26 verses just with this word where you're missing it. So it's important for us to have this understanding. And I already said this, but this shows in how a lot of translations handle these texts where the Holy Spirit's clearly in view. So the tendency is in our English translations is to translate the word spirit and spiritual with a small s. Now, if you were here last week, I went through a whole bunch of examples contrasting different translations. And I'm going to just show you this one. I, I didn't show this last week, but I get a kick out of it. And you'll see why. So this is, just to give you an example, this is Romans 2, 28 to 29. And this is the NRSV. I'll just read it. For a person is not a Jew who's one outwardly, nor is circumcision something external and physical. Rather, a person is a Jew who's one inwardly. And real circumcision is a matter of the heart. It is spiritual and not literal. <laughs> I'm laughing because uh, if you're here last week, I mentioned how I, I listened to Gordon Fee a lot, this New Testament scholar, and it's so funny uh, when he, when he'll be talking about this and he'll just, he gets so like passionate about this and, and he'll, he'll say spiritual, not literal. He's like, I just come in unglued when I read that spiritual and not literal. And he says, Paul wouldn't even understand the new, this version. If he could speak English, Paul wouldn't even understand this. And he's so passionate. Because this has nothing to do with spiritual versus literal. Nothing. And it totally leads you astray if you read it that way. Look at how the NIV translates it. Okay? I'll just read verse 29. No, a person is a Jew who's one inwardly, and circumcision is a circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, capital S, not the written code. The whole point is he's contrasting the new covenant from the old covenant, Okay, and he's actually using, he's, he's almost quoting Deuteronomy verse 30, verse 6 here. That God says, he's prophesying, when you come back from falling into captivity, I'm going to circumcise your heart so that you'll love me with all your heart and soul and live. And then Ezekiel picks this up from Deuteronomy and he says, I'm going to give you a new heart and a new spirit. I'm going to put my spirit in you. Right? Talking about the new covenant. And then Paul picks it up here. So he's clearly talking about the Holy Spirit versus the old covenant of the letter. And he makes the same contrast in Romans 6 or 7, 6 and 2 Corinthians 3, 6. The whole point is it's, it's about the Holy Spirit. And a lot of our translations translate out the Holy Spirit and, and say stuff like spiritual versus literal, which what does that even mean? Right? And so it's problematic in some ways because there's so many verses that have to do with the Holy Spirit. And if you translate it small s, you're translating them out and then we miss it. So that's part of the issue with our language. 
The key point is that if you can keep the word spirit and spiritual primarily is having to do with God, it's going to save you a lot from getting into a lot of trouble. In the New Testament, spirituality is defined altogether in, the terms of, in terms of the Spirit of God, period, that word. And one is spiritual to the degree that one lives and walks by the Spirit. It's that simple. That's all it means. Okay. Now, the second difficulty that people have is our use of imagery. And this, is, this just happens incidentally. Like, this is, uh, you could see Why? Because the metaphors that often the Bible uses for the Holy Spirit are impersonal metaphors. Like, just think about the words we use. Water, fire, wind, oil, dove, right? Often streams of living water. Jesus is referring to the Holy Spirit. I have some, just some, a few references up here for each one. But the point, like, you can't blame people in some ways because of these metaphors. Who can relate to water as a person or fire, right? But, but they're using these metaphors to capture something of how the Holy Spirit works. But if that's, see, there's nothing wrong with using that language. But the problem is if it gets you thinking of the Holy Spirit as an it, a gray oblong blur rather than a person, then right? It's, it's good to rethink, okay, these are describing characteristics of the Holy Spirit, but this isn't making him an impersonal force, like wind. You know, like wind, we talked about this last week, how pneuma, Tricia was mentioning her dream, but pneuma means wind primarily in Greek. And so a lot of, like John, for instance, in John 3.8, he says, he compares life in the spirit to the wind. You don't know where it's coming or going. It's the same word. And then he says, so are those born of the spirit, pneuma. Both are wind, or the same word I mean, wind and spirit. But anyway, the point is, that's why it's important to have sermons like this once in a while. To get, if, if we're thinking of the Holy Spirit in a way that's not personal, like if we're, if we're considering him an it, then we have to kind of have some adjustments because we're gonna, it's going to reflect how we relate to him. In fact, it'll be a huge hindrance to our relationship with the Holy Spirit if we, can't, if we don't consider him an actual person. So it's so important for us to grasp that the Holy Spirit is a person. And I want to show you that biblically today. So the Spirit is God's personal presence. I want to start off by... Talking about Paul, this is part of the issue too, is that Paul doesn't speak directly to the question, who's the Spirit? Who's the Holy Spirit? And part of this is a function of the New Testament, the epistles are letters. He's writing letters to address specific circumstances and specific churches. He's not writing a theological piece by any means. They're all ad hoc usually addressing issues in a church. So often he's the, his, his intention isn't, oh, this is who the Holy Spirit is. This is, you know, how he's related to God. So we don't get that in the Bible, really. We have to, we, he has certain presuppositions about the Holy Spirit that we just glean from. He just says things as a matter of fact. So you almost have to glean from what Paul says, incidentally, to understand his ideas of the Holy Spirit. And this is an important point. Paul simply presupposes his Old Testament heritage. Okay, he was a Jew. And so the way that was a common idea or consensus of the Holy Spirit is how he understood the Holy Spirit. And you can see this in the language he uses in the New Testament. And the important note to point out is that the Spirit of Yahweh is in some way related to the, a personal extension of Yahweh himself. God's spirit. So Yahweh sent his spirit, and by the spirit's presence, Yahweh himself is present in some way. Does that make sense? So, so the Holy Spirit is God's presence on earth among his people. And I'm going to show you this uh, verse, and that's, that's what I had there. God's presence equals Holy Spirit. This is a Jewish idea. So, for example, the divine presence in Exodus is specifically equated with the Holy Spirit in Isaiah 63, 9-14. And some of you will recognize this from a few weeks ago. But I want to read this because this is so important. And Paul even quotes this. I'll show you that later. But he's taught now, now Isaiah's actually talking about Exodus now, okay? So in verse 9, he says, In their distress, it was no envoy or angel, but his own presence that saved him, them. 
In his love and mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all of the days of old, yet they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. He's talking about the presence now, right? His, they grieved his Holy Spirit. So he turned and became their enemy and himself fought against them. Then the people recalled the days of old, the days of Moses and his people, where, he, where is he who brought them out through the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who set his Holy Spirit among them? Who sent his glorious arm of power? He's referring now to the Holy Spirit as his glorious arm of power. We'll talk about that later. To be at Moses' right hand, who divided the waters before them to gain himself everlasting renown? Who led them through the depths like a horse in open country? They did not stumble like cattle that go down to the plain. They were given rest by the Spirit of the Lord. This is how you guided your people to make yourself a glorious name. He's now equating the pillar of fire and cloud to the Holy Spirit that you see in Exodus. So, in this passage, you see his, Isaiah's understanding is that the presence of God is his Holy Spirit being present among his people. And you can see that in verse 9. It was no messenger or angel, but his presence that saved them. Verse 10, they grieved his Holy Spirit. You see that? So there's that connection. And that's the way the Jews understood the Holy Spirit. It's God's presence among them. God present himself among them. And then, like I said earlier, Paul actually quotes this in the New Testament. In Ephesians 4.30 which demonstrates that Paul understands the Spirit personally because you cannot grieve in it. You can't, right? It's a person. He's personally grieved. He has emotions. So this is Ephesians 4.30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You can see how he's citing this Isaiah passage. So what I want to show you now is scriptures in the New Testament the question is, is a divine person versus an impersonal power or influence? And I'm going to show you scripturally now that Paul and others understood the Holy Spirit as a person, because that's what he is. So, um, although most often the Spirit of, is God's agent, and this is important, this is, I think, how people misunderstand him. So this means that God does something through or by his Spirit, but the Spirit is also the subject of a large number of personal actions, things that only people do, okay? And I'm going to show you those right now. Just a few examples. I'm going to just, one after another, a bunch of scriptures. So this is 1 Corinthians 2.11. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. And the verb here is knows, knowing. 1 Corinthians 2, 13. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. And you see in John 14, 16, talking about the Holy Spirit, he'll teach you all things. So another, the verb here is teaches. He's a teacher. 1 Corinthians 12, 11. And these are the work of one and the same Spirit. And he distributes them to each one just as he determines. Or he, other translations say he wills. So the verb here is that according to uh, he works, he produces, and he wills. 2 Corinthians 3.6. Uh, and In that scripture I mentioned earlier, you'll see this is another uh, way he contrasts the Old from the New Testament using the Holy Spirit. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So the verb here is gives life. Galatians 4, 6. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out Abba, Father. And here the verb is calls out, or other translations say cries out. Galatians 5.18 and Romans 8.14 uh, talks about how you're led by the Spirit of God. Those of you who are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law, for example. Or those who are led by the Spirit are the children of God. So the verb here is leads. Romans 8.16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're God's children. So the verb here is testifies, or other translations says, say bears witness. And last but not least, this is Romans 8, 26, 27. I love this verse. In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, 
We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. So here he helps us in our weakness by interceding for us. And interestingly enough, these same verbs are used for God the Father and Jesus Christ. Just for instance, the last one I just read, later in Roman, later in Ro- the same chapter, Romans 8, 30, I think it is, it says Jesus is forever interceding for us, right? So he uses the same verbs to describe God the Father and the Son. But this is just a quick summary now, bam, 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 two major ways we know the Holy Spirit's a person in the Bible, okay? So this is kind of giving you a brief summary of lots of the scripture I just read. Because think about, I'm categorizing now, think about this. All of the distinctive characteristics of someone's personality are ascribed to the Holy Spirit in the Bible. Talking about personality now. Okay, so he has knowledge. 1 Corinthians 2, 10 and 11, we read that. He has a will. 1 Corinthians 12, 11. He has a mind. Romans 8, 27. And he has emotions. For instance, he loves Romans 15, 13, it says that, and he grieves, which is Ephesians 4.30. So these are attributes of someone's personality, right? It's not some impersonal force or power. It's an actual person we're talking about. But also, and this, this is, uh, there's a whole bunch of acts that only a person can perform, and they're ascribed to the Holy Spirit. So he searches all things. He speaks, and this is just one reference. There's a whole bunch that says the Holy Spirit speaks, which only a person can do. He cries out and bears witness. He prays and intercedes. He's a teacher. He's the leader of Christians and authority in the church. And these are just some examples, but all of these you can see are only actions a person can do. And so like I said, Paul and other, other writers of the Bible weren't writing a theology of the Holy Spirit. That's why the word Trinity doesn't even show up in the Bible. This is later Christians trying to understand the God um, because the letters are just written ad hoc. And so you, you, you have to almost take what they're saying and read into it. And, and, but you can see a lot of evidence here that they understood the Holy Spirit as a person. And that's so important. Because in talking about intimacy with God, if you think the Holy Spirit's an it, a power, or some kind of impersonal force, how are you going to relate to him? How are you going to develop relationship with him? But the way God established experiential relationship with God through Christ is the Holy Spirit. That's how we experience God in this age. And so it's so important if we want to develop intimacy with God, and I'll show you this later, it's through the Holy Spirit. So we have to relate to him as a person. We have to understand. And look at how that one shift influenced Benny Hinn. Like, come on now, Benny Hinn's like uh, internationally known as a guy who's into the Holy Spirit, right? Just look at the fruit of his ministry because, it, oh, Holy Spirit's a person, So that changes everything. I'm going to relate to him as a person, and that does change everything. So it's so important for us to make that shift in understanding. Now, the other thing I want to mention, though, is the Holy Spirit is also known as God's power. And I think that's where you see why I started with person first, Okay, because first of all, we have to have that as the foundation, that the Holy Spirit is a person before we say he's God's power. Because as soon as you say he's God's power, you think impersonal power and it and influence. Okay? But the Jewish idea of the Holy Spirit was God's personal presence and which meant God's personal power. I'll show you this. Kind of getting ahead of myself. But like I said, Paul inherited this understanding from the Old Testament understanding. And we're dealing with the personal presence of God. Holy Spirit is a person. But the Jewish heritage also understood God as power. Okay, if, if, if whatever else God was, he was powerful. He's the mighty one, right? The mighty one of Israel. So they, they just, God power, you know, God power. That's how they understand God. And as a result, because the spirit is God's personal presence among us, the spirit becomes the tangible way that they think of the presence of God's power. Does that make sense? Because God is powerful, of course, when he's here present by his Holy Spirit, there's going to be power because God's powerful. So 
You might remember, I just read this verse, but remember, where is, this is Isaiah 63, 11 and 12. Where is he who sent his Holy Spirit among them who sent his glorious arm of power? Notice now this is a, a parallelism, Semitic parallelism. He's, they're now referring to the Holy Spirit as God's glorious arm of power. So these two ideas, the spirit and power, belong together in a presuppositional way in the early church. Spirit power, spirit power. And often in the New Testament, people use the, I'm getting ahead of myself, but use the word power as a shorthand way of saying this power of the spirit. But I'll show you a few examples before I go there. Okay, so just so you know, it wouldn't have occurred to the early church that somebody would have thought of spirit without assuming the presence of God's power. That's the important point. And I'm going to show you some scriptures on this. Look at Luke chapter 1, verse 35. This is the angel of the, this is Gabriel now, visits Mary. Okay, and look at what he says to her. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you so that the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. So technically, the Holy Spirit is Jesus' dad. Go figure. But what I want to point out is, look at this. This is Semitic parallelism. This is synonymous parallelism. Okay? The Holy Spirit coming upon you is the power of the Most High. Same thing. You see that? So this is the same reality, in other words. You can't have the Spirit without the power. This is just how they understood it. And you see this in Paul the Apostle, okay, in his letters as well. He often uses this language, the power of the Spirit, over and over and over again, which is almost a redundancy, meaning not necessary, because this is just how they understood things. You see this in Luke 5, 17, when it says, the power of God was present to heal clearly alluding to the fact the Holy Spirit's power was present to heal, okay? But anyway, whenever he talks about the Spirit, that automatically involves the presence of the power of God. And I'm just, again, going to give you a few scriptures to show this. This is 1 Corinthians 2, verses 4 and 5. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. You see that connection? Look at Romans now. Romans 15, 17, and 19. This is so crucial. This is such a crucial part of the gospel. Okay, look at how Paul defines the gospel. This is, this is always intriguing to me. So he says, Therefore I glory in Jesus Christ in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I've said and done, right? It's both. It's not, it's not just word. It's word and power, word and demonstration, okay? That, so we have, we've been preaching a partial gospel for the most part in the West because for us, it's just words, 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 words. Paul's like, what I've said and done, now look at what he says. By the power of signs and wonders, through the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. Notice this is what he defines the full gospel as. Signs, wonders, demonstration, and word. Word, proclamation, power of the Holy Spirit, demonstration. The Holy Spirit confirms the message of the word through signs and wonders following. That's just how the early church operated. Here's another one saying a similar thing in a different way. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 and 5. For we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you because this is how we know that they're saved. This is how we know that God chose them. Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You see that? The gospel is all about proclamation, Holy Spirit, power. Signs, wonders, people getting blasted, you name it. That was just normal Christianity to them. And that was the message of the gospel, the full message of the gospel. That's, and he says, that's how you know you were converted. You know God chose you because when we preached, the Holy Spirit came in power, deep conviction, and there you have it. So, what I, so 
I, I was talking about this earlier, but I want to say it again because it's important. Because, it, because these two ideas, the spirit and power, were so integral and presuppositional in the early church, often what would happen, there's instances when Paul would simply say with power, when it's clear he means with the power of the spirit. I'm going to show you this later, particularly in the apostolic prayers. Okay, and, and when he does that, he doesn't say spirit. So he'll just say with power. So power is actually shorthand for the power of the spirit sometimes in Paul. Because like I said, it's almost redundant to say them because that's just how they understood the spirit. So the point is that not even, it's not even possible for the early church or the Jewish way of thinking to have thought the spirit without assuming the presence of God in person and in power. It's both. So yeah, we're talking about a person here. We're not talking about some impersonal power influence kind of thing. We're talking about the person of God is presence, present among us by his spirit in power because God is all powerful. Does that make sense? Both, person and power. Okay, now the, the thing that is, I think, tricky, not tricky, but that can... That's not always clear is what Paul actually means by power. Like when I say power, what do you think? You think just signs and wonders, right? Or, or is there more to it than that? And this is where a bunch of disagreements happen because if you talk to more uh, uh, conservative ways of thinking that don't really embrace the moving of the Holy Spirit, they'll just attribute power to like fruit of the Spirit, like like some quiescent sort of thing. But if you talk to us, <laughs> like charismatics or whatever you want to call it, Pentecostals, power equals signs and wonders. What I want to show you is it's both. Power is, okay, so it's clearly sometimes, I just read you Romans 15, 17 through 19. Sometimes through the power of signs and wonders, it's clear, Paul, those are totally connected. Okay, so clear, visible manifestations of the Spirit is evidence of the Spirit's presence. Okay, so power, signs, wonders, all that go together. But that's not the full picture. I'm going to talk about that more later. But I do want to make this point that, yeah, power equals signs, wonders, visible manifestations, power dimensions. Now, it's clear in the Bible that if you read Paul's letters, the early churches, Paul's churches were all charismatic. <laughs> that label has connotations, so what I mean by that is simply the sense that there's a dynamic presence of the Spirit manifesting in their gatherings. It's so clear. Like it's, and I'm going to show you a couple of scriptures on this. But I'm not just talking about 1 Corinthians 12 here where he talks about the gifts of the Spirit. I'm talking, he just says things kind of like, you know, incidentally, and, and it's clear that this, there, like some of the scriptures I just read, the Holy Spirit was clearly with you in power so that your faith wouldn't rest on human wisdom, but on God's power, right? But anyway, these external visible manifesting ways of the Spirit's empowering presence are simply presuppositional in the early churches. Let me give you one example. Galatians 3 verse 5. You guys, someday I'll probably, yeah, I'll talk all about the book of Galatians, but Paul is confronting these people who are trying to put others under law. He's trying, they're trying to put people under Jewish identity markers, specifically circumcision is a big one, but also holidays and food laws. And Paul's like, no, the only identifying marker you have is the Holy Spirit. That's the only thing that determines whether you're saved or not. So right before this, he asked, were you, did you receive the Spirit by believing what you heard or by obeying the law? And the clear answer is by believing what we heard. The interesting thing is, but he, that's his way of asking, were you saved? Did you receive the Spirit by this? But this, Galatians 3, 5, he says, So again, I ask, does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Right? It's a rhetorical question. Clearly, it's believing what we heard. Earlier, he actually asked, did you experience so much in vain? Like, it was such an experiential reality in the early church that Paul uses that because he knows he has them right there. He says, hey, guys, you know those crazy experiences you were having? Was it because you were doing law or is it because you believed? Was it by faith? Right? So he's actually appealing to their ex extravagant experiences of the Spirit to make his case. In other words, he wasn't arguing for miracles he was arguing from miracles. 
miracles, experiential reality of the Spirit was so normal that he based his whole argument off it. This is how he starts his argument. Because you can't argue with an encounter, right? So he's saying, look, guys, did you exp- does God work miracles among you? The whole point I'm making in this case is that they were normal. Normal part of church life, miracles, signs, wonders, Holy Spirit, power. Okay, so this is just assumed. Of course the presence of the Spirit means there will be signs and wonders. That, right? It's just an assumption that everyone had, that that was just normal part of Christianity that we have to get back to. Okay, so signs and wonders is definitely a part of this power dimension, but it's not the whole picture. It's not everything. That's, I think, some people emphasize that too much. Got to get back to the radical middle. Sometimes power means joy and suffering. Right after 1 Thessalonians verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 5, the one I just read you, he says that the Holy Spirit gives you, gave you great joy in the midst of suffering. Right? So this power is not just signs and wonders is my point. Okay? It's equally there for everything in a Christian's life. Everything is by God's empowering presence. Everything. Power and weakness, right? 2 Corinthians 12, 9. My grace is sufficient for you. My power, talking about the Holy Spirit, my power is sufficient and we are perfected in weakness, right? The power of God. So there's a power that helps us in our weakness, that helps us in our suffering. So it's not just signs and wonders, it's both. It's the empowering to walk the life of the Spirit. God's empowering presence. Which is why the Spirit's personal empowering presence is so crucial with our walk in the Lord. That's why this is so important. It's the key to Christian life. Everything is by the power of the Spirit. Being transformed into the image of Christ is by the power of the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 17 and 18. Right As we contemplate the Lord's glory, we're being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Capital S. It's the Holy Spirit who's transforming us from glory to glory. It's the Holy Spirit that, enables, that transforms us into the image of God, like his character, the fruit of the Spirit. It's all by the Holy Spirit. So important. But I'm just showing you, here's a few examples. Talking about empowering for the whole Christian walk. Conversion is the result of the Spirit's presence with power. What I just read you, 1 Corinthians 2, 4 to 5. The Spirit's power for love in every way. Ephesians 3, 16 to 21. We're going to talk about that later. But, that, but to love with the love of Christ is by the power of the Spirit, scripturally. So how do you, God, help me to love more? Praying, God, fill me with the power of your Spirit so I can love more like Christ did. The Spirit's power is for patient endurance. <laughs> how many of you know we could use some more patience? You never, <laughs> Trisha, do you remember when we first met uh, up again at Bethel, uh, the whole patience thing? The first time we met after Lakeland, after three years, we had like the craziest Holy Ghost night. And the Holy Ghost was really on patience. Remember that? We we're like, patience is a strong drink. We got so drunk on patience, it wasn't even funny. <laughs> the fruit of the spirit of patience, I'm talking about, the Holy Spirit. <laughs> but what's funny, you never hear of a conference on patience, do you? Our patient endurance. We're so impatient in our culture. We need patience. And the actual word here is long-suffering. That's actually in the Greek. It means to suffer long. Now, so the New King, or the King James Version made up a word and said long-suffering. That's more accurate than patience, but that's another story for another day. The power of the Holy Spirit is present to be against the powers of darkness. Ephesians 6, 12, and 17 through 18. The power of the Spirit fills us with the fruit of the Spirit. So, for instance, it says the power fills us with goodness and faithfulness. That's 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 11. And those two words are fruit of the Spirit. It also says that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans 15, 13. So all of these characteristics, right? All of these are by the power of the Holy Spirit. So it's not just signs and wonders. It's for everything in our Christian walk. Okay, and that is so important. That's why, like I was saying when I started, theology is so important because if we translate out the Spirit in some of these verses, which sometimes happens, we don't realize it's by the power of the Spirit that these things happen. It's by the power of the Spirit that we love our enemies. It's by the power of the Spirit we can actually walk the Sermon on the Mount. So crucial. So then I just want to end here. Okay, so what should we do in light of all this? 
Well, first of all, the Holy Spirit's a person. I want to say this. So developing intimacy with him is so crucial. That's why soaking is awesome. I, thought, I love Catch the Fire. That our, one of our main values is intimacy with God. Come on. Like we just burn for that. Intimacy with God. So developing a relationship. But in, in order to develop that relationship, it's so crucial that we know he's a person. Right? It's so important that we, and we relate to him as a person. We speak to him as a person. But what I want to emphasize today is something, application and practical takeaway from this, okay? So a key to living a spirit-empowered life. Now, my main point really is that there's no such thing as God's, uh, or sorry, as the Spirit's presence without being personal, okay? He's a person, and therefore without being powerfully present. He's a person who's really powerful. So when he shows up, there's power happening, okay? Power encounters, uh, whatever, you name it. So for Paul, the Spirit doesn't simply mean power of signs and wonders. It means the empowering of the entire Christian walk. And this is why in Galatians 5, verse 16, the only imperative in that whole chapter is walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. Two verses later, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are not under the law. Then he lists a whole bunch of works of the flesh. Then verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. In other words, the fruit of the, by being led by the Spirit and developing that relationship, he produces God's character in us. God is love, right? Joy, the peace of God, the God of peace. All these characteristics of God are produced in us. And that's how righteousness develops in us is through the Spirit. So this is why Paul regularly started his prayers by asking for the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to show you this. This is so crucial. But before I get into the apostolic prayers I want to show you, I want to remind us. You remember the first message I talked about Jesus teaching in prayer. Luke 11, verse 1 through 13. This is how you pray. And he ends this teaching on prayer in verse 13. Look how he ends. If you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is how he ends his teaching on prayer. Like, think about it. It just almost seems out of place. But what this tells me is this is of utmost importance. Jesus Christ is telling us, provoking us, saying, guys, ask for the Holy Spirit. How much more will the Father give those who ask? Ask for more of the Holy Spirit. He's the key to Christian life. Ask for more of the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, telling us this. Remember that. This is how you pray. Ask for the Holy Spirit. God's going to give them to you. And you know what I love? God is infinite. There's no limit. There's no end. So look at this in John 3, 34. Let's keep this in mind, because no matter how much you've encountered, no matter how filled you are with the Holy Spirit, there's always more. In fact, in Ephesians 5, 18, don't be drunk on wine, but what? Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that word is a continuous present verb. Be filled and continue be filled and continue be filled and continue be filled. And you know what's funny? He gives the analogy of getting drunk. Think about, <laughs> there's a couple of reasons that's funny. First of all, we, <laughs> we know that sometimes you feel drunk when you encounter the Holy Spirit. But secondly, talking about being filled. Like what happens in the world if someone gets drunk? What happens? Are they drunk the next night? No. What needs to happen if they want to get drunk again? Drink again. <laughs> and again and again. That's the, <laughs> he's making that contrast. We need to be filled and keep being filled and keep being filled. There's no limits. But if you need a scripture on that, look at this, John 3, 34. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. No limits. No limits to how much of the Holy Spirit you can have. And God gives them without limits. So we need to keep that in mind. Like, oh, I received the Holy Spirit. Like, that's, that's I think, a deception when... When people say, okay, I was baptized in the Spirit, like, whatever, 50 years ago, and that, I've arrived, you know, I got everything I can have. No way. That's not, there's no limits to what you can have. There's always more. Always more. So, in, and on that note, talking about a key to experiencing God's empowering presence. Look how Paul starts every one of the three apostolic prayers I'm going to show you. This is so crucial. 
okay? So this is Ephesians 3, 16 to 21. Practical application. Let's pray this for ourselves, guys. Let's pray this for our loved ones. Let's pray this for this church. Let's pray them for us. <laughs> if you want to pray for me and Trisha, pray these prayers. Okay, so look at this. I pray, this is Paul now. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you, what? With power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Look at this. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power, talking about the power of the spirit now, right? May have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. The power of the spirit is, the, is what enables you to grasp the love of Christ. That's what he's saying here. That God would fill you with the power of the spirit to love like Jesus, okay? But then he goes on, and to know this isn't some like intellectual knowledge. This is an experiential knowledge to know that love that surpasses knowledge. In other words, we experience the love of Christ through the power of the Spirit. It says that in Romans 5.5, 5, right? It says that he has shed abroad his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So in order, it's through the Spirit we experience God's love, his tangible love. Then it says that, look at this, you may be filled, I love Paul's prayers, to the measure of all the fullness of God. Whoa. We can, be, look, I just said there's no limits. We can be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God according to this prayer. Isn't that crazy? It's amazing how Paul prayed. He's pretty bold. I already said this, but I want to point out, look at the, the, the verse 16. It's by the power of the Spirit that we're going to apprehend and live out the love of Christ in every way, and that's so crucial. Did you learn to love? Did you walk a life of love? The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, body, soul, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. That's it. How do we do that? By the power of the Spirit. Okay? So he's the key. This verse 16 is key to that prayer because he prays that they would be filled with the fullness of the knowledge of God by the power of the Spirit. Now look at the benediction. Look at how he ends. He just finishes saying so that you'd be filled with the measure of all the fullness of God, which is crazy in a good way. But then look what he says. Now to him who's able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Apparently there's more than that. There's even more than the measure of fullness of God. To him who's able to do that, look at this. According to his power that's at work within you. That's how he started the prayer. The Holy Spirit would fill you with his power. Then he says, look, he can do above and beyond all we ask or imagine according to that power by the Holy Spirit that's at work within you. It's amazing. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus for all generations forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so clearly referring to the power of the Spirit and having the power for love in every way. It's so important. The key to Christian life, Right? So, so again, I just wanted to point out, this isn't the power for signs and wonders. This is the power to love like Jesus loved. Here's another amazing prayer. Look how Paul prayed. This is how he starts his prayers. And I mentioned this one last week because you guys remember some translations translate that small s spirit. And if you read that, you, you don't, this is, a, he, this is all about the Holy Spirit. Paul is referencing Isaiah 11 too, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. But anyway, Look at how Paul prays. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit, capital S, of wisdom and revelation. Look at this. So that you would know him better. Intimacy with God. Experiential revelation of God. Paul's saying, I'm praying that the Holy Spirit would fill you so that you would know him better. We're talking about intimacy now. We want to know God, not head knowledge. Experientially, it's by the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul's praying that. Then he goes on. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the holy people, and what? His incomparably great power for us who believe. Here again, he's using the word power, but it's clearly the power of the Spirit. Okay? And then he says, that power is the same as the, as the working of his mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, and it goes on. But we know from Romans 8.11 that it's that Holy, same Holy Spirit who raised Christ from the dead is living in you and me. He gives life to our mortal body. So that, that's what he's referring to here. Raise, the same power that raised Christ from the dead is living in you. It's amazing. And last but not least... 
talking about the apostolic prayers, talking about a practical application. Okay, how do we get more of the Holy Spirit? I mean, how do we know the Holy Spirit more? And this is showing you a lot of the stuff I was talking about, talking about the Holy Spirit and power. Colossians 1, 9 through 14. For the, and remember, I talked about this last week. This is a word pneumatikos. So a lot of people translate out the Holy Spirit from this and say spiritual, small s. But we know now that it's actually referring to capital S Holy Spirit. So important. Because like, you can see how this changes everything. If you think, if you don't realize Paul's praying for the Spirit, you don't know Paul's praying for the Spirit. And that these are what happens when you live a life in the Spirit. So for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually, this is Paul's continual prayer. Ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, capital S. But look at this. So that, this is why I'm asking this. So that you may live a life worthy of the Lord, please him in every way, bearing fruit through the Spirit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. Remember in Ephesians prayer, he's intimacy with God. Knowing God, growing in that is through the Holy Spirit filling you. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience. It's the power for patience. The point is, this, right, this is an empowering of the Holy Spirit, again, for all of Christian, all Christian life. That he would fill you. Just think about this prayer. The Spirit is the key to walking the Christian life. Because he says, look, to fill you with the knowledge of his wisdom through our knowledge of his will through the wisdom and understanding of the spirit gifts so that, look at this, you may live a life worthy of the Lord. How many of you want to live a life worthy of the Lord? Right? And please him in every way. How many of you want to please God in every way? Bearing fruit in every good work. Right? How many of you want a lot of fruit in your work? Growing in intimate knowledge with God, intimacy, and being strengthened with the power. It's all through the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, life in the Spirit, Christian walk. So how do we live this empowering presence? Look at just, look, just look how Paul prayed. Just look at how Paul prayed for the churches. Starts his prayers, God would fill you with what? The power of his Spirit or whatever. Starts, and I'm, I'm guessing he got this from Jesus. Because Jesus, that's how he taught us to pray, Right? How much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And Paul's like, okay, I'm going to ask for him then. I'm going to ask for him for all the churches. So for Paul, the Spirit doesn't simply mean power of signs and wonders. It means the empowering of the entire Christian life. Everything is through the power of the Spirit. We so need to grasp that. That's why I've, I talked earlier about theology. We need right theology and know the role of the Spirit so that we can actually live and walk the life Jesus called us to. Okay? So like Paul, we should follow Jesus' exhortation to pray for more of the Holy Spirit, to empower us in every area of our lives, to live a life worthy of the Lord, to please Him in every way, to bear fruit in every good work, to grow in the knowledge of God, intimacy with God. All through the Holy Spirit. So this is a major key to walking a Spirit-empowered life. It's simply prayer. Right? Go figure. But I mean, I, I won't ask for a show of hands. How many think to pray for more of the Holy Spirit? Regularly, like Paul said, continually I pray this. And if, if nothing else, take this away from this message that this needs to be integral in our prayer life. And you have scriptures to pray if you don't know how to pray. Because it's my conviction, this is something, and I, there's a reason why the Holy Spirit's been so marginalized. I believe it's a tactic of Satan. Because this is because if it's true that he's the key to walking the Christian life, right? Think about, okay, well, we got to get, think about Satan. Of course, he wants to get the Holy Spirit out and get people scared of him and thinking he's an it so that we don't live the Spirit-empowered life. Yeah. So this is crucial for us to have a proper understanding of who the Holy Spirit is and develop that relationship and to pray for more of the Holy Spirit. Got it? All right, I'm just going to pray for us. Father, we thank you so much for your good, 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 good grace that you give us through your spirit to live this walk. Father, I thank you so much for your Holy Spirit. And I just ask like Paul prayed that you would fill us with the power of your spirit in our inner beings. 
Lord, that you would fill us with the knowledge of your will through all the wisdom and understanding that your spirit gives. And Lord, that you would fill us with a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we would know you better. Lord, we just ask that you would give us an experiential revelation just like you gave Benny Hinn and Holy Spirit is a person and I'm going to develop that relationship, God present with us. That we would walk around as people in the spirit showing people what heaven's like, showing people what your, your amazing presence is like. That we get back to biblical Christianity of showing people the world who you are through the power of your spirit that we would love like you love, that, we would, that people would tangibly experience you and totally change their lives. God, give us that grace to be a spirit-led church, to walk in the spirit, to live by the spirit, to, to show people who you are and that your character would be developed in us as we live that life in the spirit. Give us that revelation of Holy Spirit as a person and help us to walk with you intimately. And as Paul prayed in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14, now may the love of the Father and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.